This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Wednesday morning, the 21st of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Doyle is expected to vote to end the eviction ban this evening. So what will that mean on the 1st of April for thousands of people who have already been served with a notice to quit? Some people will find alternative accommodation. Uh, others will, will need to rely on the state to help them find accommodation. And that's the way it would have been uh, six months ago before this March existed. It's the way it would have been three years ago. It's the way it would be in February or March if you had your way uh, and extended the eviction ban uh, un- until then. There is a lot of concern obviously now for the thousands who are facing eviction in the coming weeks. That's the way it would have been uh, six months ago before this moratorium existed. It's the way it would have been three years ago. It's the way it would be in February or March if you had your way uh, and extended the eviction ban uh, un- until then. Uh, this was a temporary measure. It was only put in place for the winter period and it will end on a phased basis from the end of March uh, of this year. The Taoiseach, Leo Radker, told uh, the Dáil yesterday there has been unintended consequences from the eviction ban. It did also cause problems and these are real problems that shouldn't be dismissed. Uh, People not able to move into the property that they own, people coming home from abroad, 30,000 people every year citizens come home from abroad, some of them unable to move back into the homes uh, that they rented out before they left. Uh, people who bought properties, often for their children to live in if they went to college, not being able to do that uh, in September, which is what you're proposing. Um, it also pushed more landlords uh, into leaving the sector, and I believe it discourages new landlords from coming in as well, all making the supply situation, which is at the heart of this crisis, um, all, all the more worse. So why is it that the government doesn't want to extend the ban if thousands of people are going to be evicted in the coming weeks? The truth is it would probably just make matters worse then than they are now. Uh, and you'd see a situation uh, where you, you might see even more landlords choosing to sell up. And I think that would be a mistake or you discourage more landlords from coming in. And simply kicking, some, kicking the can down the road, Deputy, is not a housing policy. In my view, the Minister for Housing outlined to the doll the thinking that there is behind the government's housing policy. At the crux of everything we do is the need to increase supply of housing. Extending the eviction ban would not do that. If we were to do, as Sinn Fein asked, and extend the moratorium to the end of January, we would only serve to shrink the number of homes available to rent. If we were to do what they are asking, we would only be having this very same debate in the middle of winter 
And if we were to do as you are asking, there would be no phasing out period, rather a hard cliff edge of evictions in the weeks after Christmas, as you've proposed. Dara O'Brien, who went on to accuse Sinn Féin of playing politics with the housing crisis. The motion very clearly shows that Sinn Féin are not against evictions. Rather, they will ensure there are evictions when the situation would be much worse. This government has been honest with people. We introduced the winter moratorium to mitigate pressures faced by people over the winter period. We did so in the face of a cost of living crisis. We said at the time we would use the period of the moratorium to ramp up supply. The minister went on to say what the government is doing to help renters. So for the information of some deputies opposite, I will briefly outline the facts of what we did at that time and over the period of the moratorium. In the last quarter of 2022, almost 6,000 new social homes were delivered, including almost 5,000 new build social homes. At the same time, 1,532 local authority homes were refurbished under the VOIDS programme and brought back into use. Just prior uh, to and during the period of the moratorium, local authorities opened some 500 additional emergency accommodation beds and 170 cold weather beds. 734 adults and 346 families exited homelessness in quarter four of last year. And the RTB data shows that 19,049 new tenancies were registered in January and February of this year. In the last three months of 2022, during the winter eviction moratorium, 1,896 HAP tenancies were created. On this point, I want to, to highlight that the state has created an average of 630 HAP tenancies each month of last year. And that's a direct support for our most vulnerable renters. And at the same time, the government recognises that there is a crisis, but... It, it's not all bad news. We understand it's difficult for people, but we want to ensure that we continue to have extra supply for people that are in social housing, people that are in HAP, that the tenant situ scheme... The, that the, the councils will continue to purchase at pace. There is further schemes coming on, the first opportunity to purchase people who are renting. There's a B-scope scheme coming in for people who are renting, who are not on the social housing list, that the local authorities on an administrative basis can purchase those homes and, and rent them back as a reasonable, uh, normal rent. Minister Kieran O'Donnell there. Now, the Taoiseach Leo Radker says continuing a ban on evicting people is not a solution to them having somewhere to live. The solution to this is a different one. It's more social housing, which we're doing. It's the tenants' dis-situ scheme, uh, which we're doing. Uh, it's, the, it's more supply, such as through Cree-Cree-Cona and, and changes to the fair deal. It's tax changes to encourage more landlords to stay in. Uh, and more to re-enter, and also it's increasing funding for homeless prevention. The Taoiseach, Leo Vratker. Let's speak uh, to Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and columnist with uh, the Mead Chronicle. Good morning to you, Gavin. Thanks for joining us. We've been listening to the government's arguments there, and uh, I'm not sure if uh, the government will win the arguments with our listeners uh, this morning, but they're certainly going to win the vote, it seems, in the Dáil this evening. Yeah, that's the way it seems, and I think the government has already, uh, you know, made its bed and reconciled the idea that it's probably not going to win the public arguments, and that um, it's its conception that things are it, that what they're doing now 
is the lesser of two evils or the, the least worst option. Um, it's never going to go down too well with the government or with the public, but that, that's just the way it is. I think the government accepts that. The more important thing for itself in the short term is how does it do in the Dáil this evening? And even though this evening's vote is a non-binding one, uh, and even though the Sinn Féin motion isn't actually going to be considered itself, it's just a, one of the, the peculiarities of the way the Dáil works, that the government's counter motion gets considered before the Sinn Féin one. Um, really, the, the symbolism is in where the votes actually go, because first of all, we're going to have the government again potentially going into minority situation. It currently accounts for 81 of the 160 TDs. Nasa Harrigan is definitely going to vote against. That would be her third time uh, breaking ranks with the government, her second time doing so over housing. And it would be likely to mean that she'd be likely to be suspended indefinitely from the parliamentary party or kicked out of the coalition altogether. That would bring it down to 80 there's a prospect of Patrick Costello, another Green Party TD, also breaking ranks with the government tonight. That would bring down to 79. I think it'd be in a minority government, possibly in perpetuity, and the government would be staying in situ only because of the support of outside independents from the likes of the regional groups. So, for example, the likes of Carl Berry, Marion Harkin, Michael McNamara, uh, people who, who often support the government from the outside. The government will then find itself formally dependent on the support of, of TDs like that. And Again, it's not binding this week, but we also found out last night for certain that there is going to be a binding motion of no confidence in the Dáil next week. So really, the the vote this evening is probably a proxy for what happens next week. And any TD who is unlikely to support the government tonight is is unlikely to back them next week. And of course, do bear in mind, were they to lose the motion next week, a motion of no confidence, if the government is defeated, then that's it. Leo goes to the park and the people go to the country. That's a a Labour Party motion, is it? Yes, that's right. And the Labour Party have been... Historically reticent to do anything like this, and obviously the Labour Party were in coalition between 2011 and 2016, but they've been pointing out today that the uh, this motion that they're going to bring next week, which they say they're going to bring because the government hasn't uh, adopted their, their constructive, as they say, um, solution on ending the evictions ban, um, it's the first time that they will have done so in 20 years. Uh, and although Sinn Féin and other TDs are perhaps a, a little bit more flahulock with, with putting down motions of no confidence and they, they effectively do it almost as often as they're entitled to. You can only do it every six months. Um, the Labour Party has only done it once in the last 20 years. So the very fact that they've chosen this as the hill they believe the government should die on carries enough symbolism in and of itself. And it is also, by the by, it is far from the, the, the main um, storyline and all of this, but it is an interesting way in which Ivana Bacic may be outmanoeuvring the Social Democrats, that although Sock Dems appear to have had the wind at their backs and higher poll ratings, that it does seem that, that Ivana Bacic has managed to um, negotiate herself into to quite a happy position because she'll be bringing this motion of no confidence in the government next week. And then that can be the dominant storyline as they go into their party conference this weekend. So mm. Ivana Bacic, when she's doing all of her TV and radio interviews around the, the party conference, will be able to talk about why she believes now is the right time to pull the plug in the government. OK, but will that happen? The potential for it happening is slim, is it not, given the support that the government is expected to get this evening from uh, the independents, and it may be the independents that will support them, uh, as you say, in uh, that no-confidence motion next week. Uh, and indeed, this counter-motion that the government will ask the Dáil to vote on this evening has nine key points in it, eight of them appear to have been written by the regional independent group. Yeah, and some of them almost verbatim. And, and I think this is, is quite curious because, again, it shows the degree to which the government wants to lock down any kind of working majority in the Dáil. Because if they do have a situation where uh, the Green Party loses two of its 12 and you get down to 79, well, I think what you might be seeing is, is almost this kind of informal uh, fourth wing of a coalition uh, getting on board. Because um, it, it is pretty unusual for the government to be uh, so insistent on locking down votes for a non-binding motion 
that it will be offering significant policy concessions to a group of independent TDs like the regional independent group, which includes the three TDs that I mentioned earlier, and also includes, crucially, the likes of Michael Larry and Noel Grealish, who tend to support the government whenever there's a confidence vote because they know that it means their own pet projects are looked on more favourably afterwards. Um, but if you have a situation where uh, five independent TDs or more are coming together and effectively offering a prescription for government policy, the things that they want to have seen, and and that's being adopted by the government and the government is prepared to, to, to bring that on board and almost copy the wording word for word, it does suggest that the government is very keen to make sure that this isn't the hill that they die on because they know that if, if uh, suddenly things were to slip and they found themselves going to the country off the back of uh, an evictions ban being lifted and rampant homelessness, they know they're on a hiding to nothing, frankly. Mm. So they seem pretty keen to try and at least lock down not just one or two independents, but a group of independents if they can. And it would be fascinating to see that if we do have a, a minority government, that you could have this, this almost official arrangement where five more independent TDs are almost seen as another wing of the coalition, or at the very least, that there was some kind of confidence and supply deal where there is an explicit agreement to keep them on board through, through thick and thin. OK, so quite possible that the coalition will survive, but by the skin of its teeth, because it gets the support of uh, these independents on this hugely important issue, because it is hugely important when thousands of people are going to be evicted from their homes Oh, which is going to happen in the next couple of weeks. We've lost Gavin Riley there. We'll get him back on the line. Uh, but what I was going to mention to Gavin Riley was that there was a lot of complaints, and understandably so, because this is such a, an important issue and so important not just to the thousands of people who are going to lose their homes. The government, by its own admission, says people are going to lose their homes. It's not just important to those who are going to be evicted. It's important to most people in this country because it's a dreadful situation for any government to preside over. But there were a lot of complaints in the doll last night about the empty seats. Gavin Riley is back on the line. It was a surprisingly low turnout from the government representatives, wasn't it, Gavin? Uh, it was, uh, and I suppose that is often the case because they know that this is a, a public argument, at least, that they can't win. Like I said earlier on, they may have the votes, but they don't have the public on their side. So if you are a government backbencher, uh, why would you make a, a point of being visible beside a minister who is losing the argument? Uh, and why, if you get seen on the 6-1 or the 9 o'clock news, the Virgin Media News at 5.30 or 7, wh- why would you run that risk uh, of being pictured beside them when it looks like you're, sink- you're, you're tying yourself to a sinking ship? Now, the one thing I will say is that sometimes it's very popular among um, you know, people in the public and even political correspondents um, to point out the, the, the low attendance in the Dáil Chamber. In truth, um, if you think about what you want your TD to be doing, it's almost the least productive place in Leinster House to be because when you're there, you're not on the phone talking to constituents, you're mm. not dealing with casework, you're not able to pick up the phone to call other government officials to try and advance the cause of the constituents or to advance your own agenda. Um, it, it is the time of day when you are almost effectively um, at your least productive. Fair enough, same, but but, but this is... It's the same with TDs too, are journalists in, in mm. the press gallery. We're not allowed to use phones in the press gallery, which means that uh, the one place you can't report on the proceedings of the doll. ironically, is, is sitting in the doll chamber. Oh, oh, that's fair enough, but this is a coalition government and uh, the decision to end the ban is the decision of uh, the three government parties and we heard from Fianna Fáil and we heard from Fine Gael and whatever about backbenchers not being in, in the chamber for the debate, uh, there was no Green Party speaker in this debate, let alone yeah. any uh, any Green TDs attending the debate. Yeah, very much so, and I did point out at leaders' questions yesterday when, when this was obviously going to 
be the dominant theme and you played some clips of it earlier from, from Leo Varadkar's contributions as well that there were no Green Party TDs present and my phone lit up shortly after I tweeted that from uh, Green Party backbenchers saying well I can't be there because I'm attending this committee which is at the same time or I'm attending this other committee which is at the same time so a, a lot of their, their whereabouts for that could have been accounted for but yes certainly when it came to um, the government's speaking time uh, in the Dáil Chamber last night there, there was every prospect if a TD wanted to take some of the government speaking time and to be able to contribute from the back benches and the very fact that they didn't maybe says says its own um, volumes about exactly how the, the government's own backbenchers feel about all of this and again this idea of big scene on the national news tying themselves to what they what in, in public eyes may well be a sinking ship. Okay, uh, let's try and understand this from uh, the government's perspective or, or maybe you can help us to understand it from the government's perspective because uh, I, I think uh, everybody would agree that we're facing into a, a shameful situation uh, in one of the richest countries in the world where thousands of people are going to be evicted uh, by the government's own admission that's going to happen and it's no knowingly overseeing that. But the government uh, knows no shame in relation to this because of all of the measures that it has been taken and it's done the best it can in a bad situation. There's no apology for it because uh, it's the right thing to do to end this ban uh, because the government says it would only be worse uh, if they extended it out mm-hmm. to the end of January. So they're going to go ahead, plough ahead uh, and end the ban on the 1st of April. Uh, and very hard to understand for a lot of people because they would six months to put measures in place to stop this situation where thousands are, are going to be evicted and they're saying 10 months from now at the end of January uh, it'll only be worse uh, in other words they can't do something over the course of the next 10 months uh, to stop that from getting worse uh, maybe they should ask if somebody else could do a better job Well this was a, a very interesting point that Mary Lou McDonald made during the questions yesterday because she, she finally gave voice to a feeling that many people watching on probably have in that Leo Varadkar was bemoaning the alternatives put forward by everyone else as, as only making the situation worse. And Mary Lou McDonald said, you have all of the air of a man who thinks that this problem is unfixable. And it is. And, and you, you simply are all out of ideas about how to fix it. And I think maybe the closer that we get to an eventual election, the, the more true that might seem. Because if people take a step back and look at all the concessions the government is making to the regional independence, for example, that we talked about only a few minutes ago, the idea of um, now allowing people to access the Creek Kona scheme to do up a derelict property, even the property is newer, or that you can now uh, do it up not only to live, but to then put tenants in it straight away. Or this idea that now if you are a local authority tenant, you'll be allowed to participate in the rent-a-room scheme, take up to 14 grand a year tax-free, and have a nice little earner off the basis of a public asset that you're already getting at a subsidised rate. All of those things are things which the government could easily have done itself in the last uh, four or five months. It could easily have, have considered them only two weeks ago when it decided to lift the eviction ban. But it didn't have those ideas then. Suddenly, some outsiders come up with those ideas and the government says, oh, hey, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. It does beg the question as to why some of those things weren't done. And, and there are other things that the government is committed to doing, which they have committed to doing multiple times already. Like one of the things that's in this counter motion, again, to try and win over the support of backbenchers or independent TDs, is they're saying that they're going to look at the tax treatment of small landlords and they will do something in the next budget to try and make sure that there is equitable treatment for small landlords versus the big ones. That is something that they said they were going to do last September when they were doing the last budget and they weren't able to decide on what they did. So they ended up then giving the renters tax credit of €500 a year, but they weren't able to do anything for landlords because they simply couldn't decide what was the best way to do it. Why would they be able to decide this October 
if they couldn't decide last autumn. Uh, it begs the question mm. as to why they are committing to doing something now when this is a discussion they've already had without there being any fruitful outcome. Uh, and may- maybe if someone else comes up with a good idea, they'll say, yes, that's a good idea, and then they'll adopt it. But what does that say about a government that keeps com- having discussions, not reaching any conclusion, and then just adopting all the ideas that somebody else puts forward? Maybe there is an argument. All right. This is a government which is running out of ideas. Maybe so, uh, but this argument is not over. The debate will uh, continue until uh, uh, the vote is, uh, takes place tonight, uh, and it seems like the government will win it, but uh, that won't end the matter either, as you say. Uh, it'll run over into next week, and uh, this uh, motion of no confidence in uh, the government. Gavin, thank you so much for joining us uh, Thanks, on the programme this morning. Always a pleasure. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News, is a columnist with the Mead Chronicle. Michael Reed on LMFM. Some people in touch with us already this morning. Great to be getting uh, messages early in uh, the programme. Paddy Duffy in touch about the 1900 tenancies uh, that were registered in January, February. He says a hell of a lot of those were pre-existing tenancies but they hadn't been registered until the rent tax relief was introduced and tenants went to claim the relief and then they found that their tenancy wasn't registered with the RTB. Well, if that is the case, Paddy, I imagine uh, there's a lot of trouble for 1,900 landlords uh, because that would be illegal. You must register a property if you're renting it out. Tom says, listening to Leo Bradker at the start of the programme, it's so clear to me he's only worried about the well-heeled in society. He said people coming home from abroad to their own house as parents who bought their kids' property to live in while at college. Oh, my God. He needs to look after poor people, not the rich, says Tom. Thank you for your text to the mess, uh, to the programme as well. Some WhatsApp messages. Uh, one from uh, Sean in Dublin 9 who says, the same shower of being in power for the last 11 years plus, and they've had all those years to sort out this problem, but they've made it worse. Now, they blame Ukraine. You couldn't make it up, says Sean. And uh, another WhatsApp message from somebody who says, they can't be in the doll if they're in another country. Very convenient. <laughs> Thank you indeed. I imagine uh, most of uh, the TDs are in the country uh, after the Patrick's uh, celebrations, if uh, that's what you mean, caller. But thank you indeed for your message. If you'd like to make a comment on the programme today, our telephone number is 041 That's 041 You can text us or WhatsApp us on 086 658 and you can email michael at lmfm.ie. We're going to stay with Doll Business for uh, another minute or two and a, a local issue, indeed, uh, an issue that's uh, impacted uh, people across the, the country for that matter and how there is going to be an inquiry into how COVID was dealt with by nursing homes. Government to have an inquiry into nursing homes during COVID but the reality is that the Oaklands nursing home in Kerry when HICWA visited there in November 2020, 27 of the 32 residents had COVID. The general manager and the person in charge were both absent and the person further identified to manage the centre in the event of the absence of those people did not step up and take responsibility for the centre, albeit from a distance as this person lived abroad. That's appalling, disgraceful care of elderly people. The only reason we know that is the system did work in the context of HICWA. HICWA discovered that. HICWA went in there. HICWA, during the course of their investigation, took over the care and management of that home. So things have worked, and they worked very well. 
And of those 27 people, uh, uh, most of them survived. Nine of them passed away, sadly. That compare and contrast that to Dalgan House in Dundalk, where 22 people died and nobody turned up to help them. Doctors or nurses, nobody. The COVID pandemic bore down very, very hard on our older people, especially those in nursing homes. And in the early days, I suppose, you know, there was a lot of learnings in relation to PPE, infection prevention and control and best practice. And I also welcome the fact that there will be um, an inquiry into what happened um, in relation to COVID over the past three years, because there's a lot of learnings that have to, had to be had. But I do want to say, in fairness to uh, Minister Harris, he did put in place very early in 2020 the expert panel um, review um, into nursing homes and all those recommendations have been taken on board and they are being put in place. But I do want to sympathise to the many, many families all over the country who lost a loved one in nursing homes during COVID. Dr Thomas Gold. To correction, uh, nurses did turn up and doctors, but not immediately. And uh, the most of them didn't turn up when they were asked. Uh, dreadful situation, uh, as so many local people are acutely aware in Dalgan House. That's Fine Gael TD, Fergus O'Dowd, raising that issue once again in uh, the Dáil. The response that you heard to him there was from Minister Mary Butler. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. If you were watching prime time on television last night, you'd have to ask yourself who in their right mind would own or run or work in a shop. RG Data represents more than 4,000 independent grocery stores and it says the level of abuse is out of control for retail workers who suffer from assault, harassment, racist attacks, sexual harassment, shoplifting and theft are commonplace at that. Tara Buckley, Director General of RG Data, is on the line. And a very good morning to you, Tara, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, I think many of us were very taken aback by the level of abuse uh, that retail workers are subjected to on a, a non-going basis, on a, a daily basis, uh, and uh, the level of that abuse. And indeed, it seems to be very commonplace. You've surveyed your uh, members uh, and uh, criminality is a day-to-day occurrence, it seems. Yes, thanks very much, Michael, and thanks for having me on the show this morning. Um the survey we did this year was even shocking to us, and, and we've been doing these surveys for a long time, but it was the immediate response from over 400 retailers to say to us that it's a daily occurrence in their store, and to say that, you know, it's, 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 they feel it's, it's so constant, it's an absolute stress, it's a stress for them, it's a stress for their staff, it's, you know, you dread going into the, in to open your shop in the morning because you don't know what you're going to face that day, and this is probably a small group of criminals and then others who are creating this huge problem for, for shops and for the other customers and for the staff in the shops. Mm. I, I, I thought to myself, um, I, I, I'd be afraid to work in a, a shop and I, I wouldn't be very comfortable if somebody I knew worked in a, a shop watching the programme last night and uh, some of uh, the abuse uh, that was meted out at staff working in shops. But I also got the impression that there seems to be very little that can be done about it. Well, you know, you could see from the retailers that um, were prepared to go on last night, and there were many more retailers with, you know, strong stories to tell, but don't want to go on television to tell their stories because they're afraid it will create more problems for their store. But you can see the way the, 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 the owners have invested in CCTV, um, in, in, in security measures to try and ensure that they're making their shop as safe as possible. 
So that's a considerable investment. We, we would believe that at this stage, our members are probably investing anywhere up to 60,000 a year in, in security measures, CCTV, um, patrolling the shop. Some have had to employ permanent security staff. Um, it's like it's it's you you're obviously very concerned for the welfare of your staff and the welfare of your other customers. I mean, we spend our days trying to make our shops nice places to come. You know, we we pride ourselves in our customer service in the independent sector, and. This is a small element who are making mm. life extremely difficult for us to do yeah, that. And spend your evenings, Dan, looking at your CCTV coverage of people who are stealing from under your nose and there's nothing that can be done about it, it seems. Well, absolutely. I mean, the frustration that was really um, found in the survey was about the court system. Many of our members would have pursued, made complaints, given the, given the evidence, given the CCTV footage, made the statements, and their problem is that somebody who may have robbed their shop 20, 30 times, the following week they're back out um, laughing in their faces. Um, you know, so we would like to see zero tolerance. From, from, from when this crime starts at a young age, people starting to shoplift, we believe that needs to be nipped in the bud. It needs to be taken very seriously and we need probably a sort of cross-departmental approach to that from the Department of Education, from the Department of Social Welfare, from the Department of um, enterprise and from the Department of Justice so mm. that we're really combining all of those things we're trying to do to address you know, antisocial behaviour, to address um, youth crime. We need to bring all those groups together to come up with a way of dealing with this. It seemed as well that the law at times uh, is more favourable to these blackguards who go to solicitors and then end up suing you or threatening to sue you. Well, that was another element. Not only have we to deal with the people who are actually robbing our shops, but then we have people who come in and pretend to rob the shop and then create a fuss when they're, if they're confronted. So they, they may take something from a shelf and then they slip it somewhere else and leave the shop. And, or, and as they're leaving, they're asked, excuse me, sir, you know, have you paid for everything you have? And then they, they make a big fuss and the next thing the owner gets a solicitor's letter saying they've been defamed, accused of robbery and they're looking for, you know, 2,000, 3,000, 5,000. Mm, a lot of money. Uh, do uh, shop owners pay? No. Well, look, shop owners, you know, they have a huge amount of time put into training their staff to deal with these situations. Mm. So, to be honest with you, in many cases, we would have members who say, we, we don't, we, we stop confronting them. We call the guards and tell them it happened. But because of the, the drama it creates in the store and the stress it creates in the store for ourselves and for our other customers, we, we report to the guards. And what they would like to see is that there would be a system in place that it would be dealt with. The other soul-destroying thing for somebody who owns, and these are small businesses right across the country. When, like, you know, the, if you do go to court and you get a, you get a, a conviction for shoplifting, the owner never really sees the, the, the stuff that was stolen, the cost of the store of, of spending the day in court, of dealing with the whole situation, probably of fixing the broken windows or the broken um, store, mm. you know, with stuff that's been broken or damaged in the store. They never see anything back from that. So at the end of the day, the retailer is, is out of pocket and has spent all this time pursuing it and really feels so frustrated. And I, I take it it's more expensive uh, to claim an insurance for it. Oh, absolutely. Look, this creates huge problems for us because shops are paying ginormous Mm. insurance for all of this. 
and if once you've one claim in your store, your insurance goes up. Hmm. So you know it's a, it's it's a it's a double whammy. But the reality of it, Tara, it must be that we all end up paying for it. Absolutely, I, I I constantly say to people, this is not a victimless crime. Not only is it the shopkeeper and their staff, but it's also all of us who shop. Are in the long run, we're all paying for this because it's costing so much to to create to to do the security to 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 pay for the goods. Mm-hmm. It means either our members can't invest in their stores because they're losing sixty or eighty thousand a year on this, or they can't employ more people if they'd like to employ more people, or they'd like to provide more service in the store or extend the store. They can't do any of that because it's costing them so much to deal with this problem. 60 to 80,000 euro a year, that's not small change. Uh, and it is no wonder, uh, on the other hand, that you've stopped confronting them, given the stories we saw last night about people being threatened with broken bottles and needles. Absolutely. We, uh, You know, when you read the responses back to our crime survey, I mean, it's an eye-opener. Spitting, hitting, kicking vile abuse. Um, A lot of our members employ people from other countries, really good staff, really working hard. The vile racist abuse they have to put up with is unbelievable. Um, Lots of the lots. We have lots of young women working in the retail sector. I mean, one of the retailers last night said they stopped their staff having to wear name badges because of the the problems it created for the young women Um, sexual harassment um, people, you know, following them around um, asking them out and if they say sorry no thank you then starting to get very nasty with them and aggressive so you know it's it's sort of a constant battle um, and it, it's it is and then you also have the people who arrive in with knives guns you know syringes um, smashing bottles in the store and threatening the owners um, th- stealing coffee and then throwing it over the, the staff when they're confronted at the door um, so like it's there's, there's potential in everything to be a, to be a weapon. To be honest with you, mm. and you've carried out surveys similar to this over the years. Uh, is it right to think uh, the the problems uh, that you experience in shops now are far worse than they would have been, let's say, ten or twenty years ago? Unfortunately, um, I have to admit that that is the case. And I'm a member of the the Guard National Retail Pep Forum, and the guards have shown that forum their figures. They haven't revealed them publicly yet. But they told us at that forum that the reports of incidents in shops in May 2022 was higher than any other time in the past 15 years. So we, they've seen a 40% increase in reported incidents. And our members are saying, like 95% of our members are saying it's a daily constant threat in their stores. Mm. Uh, and are the thieves getting braver? Well, what we, we, because we see them from a young age, we, they definitely get more aggressive and more inclined to arrive in with weapons as they get older. So if they start mm. just shoplifting and shouting abuse, um, it, it, it moves on and they become more aggressive and have come in maybe with knives or guns. Mm. So that's something that really needs to be addressed. Yeah. Um, yes, it is more aggressive. We, we, you know, there seems to be a... a Maybe, I don't know, we, we feel there's a fallout maybe from COVID as well. Mm. Did, did a certain group of people just get angrier? Yeah. And taking it out on people who are just trying to do their job? Mm. And I, I saw some of uh, your members talking about how people arrived in the shop with masks during COVID and it was very convenient for them. I, you know, and at the time we were really working hard because we were mm. essential stores. Our members stayed open and really had to work hard to make their stores safe for themselves, their staff and their customers. And 
while we had the problems of people who wouldn't wear masks, there was also the challenges of, you know, because a lot of these stores, to be honest with you, sadly, know because they are regular shoplifters that come in, people who have serial offences, who come in gangs and do it, they know that, you know, they know what, they are, what they're up about and they were able to put their, they were the ones wearing their masks because they were happy mm. not to be able to be um, seen on the CCTV footage or identified. So, to conclude, is this happening because people aren't uh, afraid to behave like this because there's little or no consequence, uh, whether they're being uh, abusive or whether they're uh, uh, assaulting somebody or stealing things, as uh, the case may be. Uh, And if that is uh, the case, uh, what can be done uh, in terms of correcting that? The reality is it's probably, this is probably a very small minority of the millions of people who go in and make uh, go in and purchase something in a shop every day, but they're making life extremely difficult for everyone. So we believe that if a zero tolerance approach was taken to so nip it in the bud, some of our members had very good um, results when something happened in the store and they dealt with the local school, the local the parents, the local uh, community guards all got together and dealt with the issue. Then they found that they were able to address it and, and sort things out. And we believe that this is what needs to happen. It needs to happen when people start at an early age. They need to understand what the implications are of robbing. It's not a victimless crime. It's not, sim- it's not just petty. It is something that can become quite serious. And because of the amount of it, it's very serious for the small business owners that I represent. Okay, Tara, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Tara Buckley is uh, the Director General of RG Data. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, thanks uh, to the caller whose WhatsApp us to save uh, shops makes uh, an insurance claim after one of these incidents we were hearing about from RG Data. Uh, even if uh, that claim is turned down, uh, you'll still see an impact on your premium. You'll still see your insurance costs go up. Uh, we'd Tom in touch with us saying, I've asked this before, will there be an inquiry into what happened in our hospitals during COVID? My dad got COVID and died in a hospital through no fault of his own. Uh, well, I believe uh, the inquiry will be established in uh, the middle of uh, this year, Tom, and it's look at every aspect of how the country responded to the pandemic. Shirley, thank you for your text today as well. She says, there's a house in an estate behind me. It's been empty for a couple of years because the tenants got transferred to another house. My mother left to go to a bungalow in November and there's nobody in her house either. And that's completely ready to move into. Another house then next to my mother. Uh, nobody in it since she moved in and we've a 14 year waiting list. Why are the houses still empty? We need answers. It's ridiculous. And it's not only in my area. It's all over and the town council needs to answer for this. Well, thank you indeed, uh, Shirley, for raising that with us. It's a very interesting text, especially given uh, the situation that people find themselves now, where they're going to be evicted and there is no stopping that. That's what's going to happen because the eviction ban is going to be lifted. We heard from the government earlier. We're going to hear from some of the opposition now. Without putting any measures in place, you intend to remove this protection for renters during an unprecedented housing emergency. Uh, Homes to rent are at an all-time low. Rents at an all-time high. Housing supply is too slow, housing prices are through the roof, we have record homelessness and emergency accommodation is full in many areas. And now your decision to lift the eviction ban throws renters to the wolves. 
We're talking Taoiseach about people who work hard, pay for everything, and do all the right things to build a decent future. We're talking about tens of thousands trapped in the rental market who, in another generation, would have had the opportunity to buy a home of their own. This is a nightmare for renters hit with an eviction notice. Thousands more are terrified of that call from their landlord with the news that they must leave their home. That's Sinn Féin's Mary Lou Macdonald. Now, the government says it doesn't matter whether it wins or loses uh, this vote because it's a non-binding vote. But the Labour leader, Ivana Bakic, said there will be consequences. As you know, I wrote to you last Thursday with draft legislation, which we are calling on you to move this week. Our legislation provides a mechanism to keep the ban in place until monthly homelessness reports show a reduction for four successive months. This is a compassionate, evidence-based approach, results-based, not time-based, and it's the approach that homeless agencies have urged you to adopt. So Taoiseach, will you admit that you've made a mistake? Will you stop defending the indefensible and will you reverse your decision? If not, you've left us with no choice but to table a motion of no confidence in your government next week. A a measure we do not take up lightly, but a measure which we believe is justified by reference to the devastation that your government's decision is causing you, so Deputy. many thousands of families and renters around the country. Uh, Vanna Bakic is uh, the leader of uh, the Labour Party. Imelda Munster is the Sinn Féin TD for Louth. Minister, just look behind you and look around you at the rows of empty seats. Your government ministers and backbenchers showing utter contempt for thousands of people who face eviction and homelessness in the next 10 days. Are they hiding up in their offices or are they hiding in the Dáil Bower? They can hide from the debate tonight but they can't hide from their constituents tomorrow evening if they vote to to lift this eviction ban today. No emergency accommodation in Loud, no hotels, no B&Bs, nothing. 172 people presented homeless to Loud County Council last month. That's before you... A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Eviction ban. Today, five properties to rent in Drogheda on daft.ie, the largest town in Ireland. Minimum 96 families in Loud face eviction in 10 days' time. Minimum 120 families in Mead face eviction over the next few weeks. The consequences of your action, I'm going to give you a reality for families. One family, two adults, five children, one child with autism, another that suffers from anxiety and depression, parents petrified 
at the thoughts, the real prospect of being homeless in a couple of weeks' time. Where does this family go? Another family on Loud County Council housing list, in receipt of HAP from Loud County Council, served eviction notice. Houses technically in Mead, because a part of Drogheda is in Mead, the landlord is willing to buy. The Loud County Council said no to the tenant in situ purchase because the house is in Mead. Mead County Council said no because the, per the family are on Loud County Council. Where did this family go? Did they go to the Garda station? Another case of homelessness today, no beds available anywhere in Loud. Homeless department offered 100 euros to the individual, nothing available. Where does that individual go? The truth is, you have no contingency plans and you have no immediate solutions. Another Sinn Féin TD, Thomas Gould, told the doll he's also worried about his constituents. This government's lifting on abandoned eviction tomorrow night is betraying people. That's what this is, a betrayal of ordinary, vulnerable people. I have a person, a married woman with one child, who's going to do chemo treatment, who's going to be evicted by you. But you, let's call a spade a spade. I have another lady that I told the Taoiseach about today who's stage four COPD on constant oxygen. You're a victim of next month. This is what this government is doing. So don't tell us about uh, all the different schemes you're running. Six months ago, you should have did your job. You haven't done your job. What we are suggesting now, extend it to the end of January. Let's do your job now. We'll actually work with you, Minister. We will work with this, with this government. Because what you're doing, you, can I say this now? How would you know? That's the question. I come from Nakhnehini in Cork, a working class area. I'm proud of where I come from. I'm talking to people every day who are going to become, I need a speech here. I don't need a speech because I know the people. I know people who are going to be homeless next month who are coming to me begging for help. And I'm up here today to stand up for these people because we always know Fianna Gael didn't give a damn about them. But Michal McGrath, you're a senior minister from Cork. Shame on Fianna Fáil and everyone in the backbenchers for backing up Fianna Gael and selling out ordinary people. The Social Democrats spokesperson on housing is Keno Callaghan. I do at this stage want to appeal to government backbenchers that it's not too late for them to change their mind on this and to do the right thing and vote with this motion. In particular, I think uh, the Green TDs uh, should show some backbone uh, on this. I know there's no Green TDs in the chamber at present, uh, but they do have a role uh, in this. I don't believe when any of them stood for election that they were running on the basis of when homelessness is at record levels, they'd be supporting measures that would increase uh, that even further. And indeed, the Minister for Housing has said that lifting the eviction ban is likely to increase homelessness uh, even uh, further. That's a quite a, an exceptional situation for a Minister for Housing to be in, to be supporting a measure that will increase homelessness at a time of record homelessness. People before Prophet TD Breed Smith also called on the government to stop these evictions. Clarity is needed for tenants. But let's be clear, by lifting this ban, you'll have abdicated your right to govern, to rule. You'll have put a nail in the coffin of the two civil war parties. You'll have declared to the people of this country that the rights of property of landlords, of investment trusts and financiers trump the rights of children to a home to a roof over their head. You will have revealed for all to see that your political philosophy is the inheritor of the political philosophy of Tories and Whigs who evicted Irish peasantry in the 1870s out of the same belief that the right of landlords and property were paramount. 
And just as those evictions gave birth to the Land League, I hope that your callousness shown today will give birth to a fight and tenants movement. And I urge all those faced with eviction to stay put and fight. And to everybody who abhors this government policy to get outside this house at one o'clock on the 1st of April, the day of fools, in this case, the fools of Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the Greens. Be that as it may, the government is going to lift the ban from the 1st of April. Under that circumstance, Patter Tobin, a TD for Meath West, asked the government to consider a name to amendment. Uh, the amendment states that it calls on the government to make provision to ensure that no person can be evicted if they fulfil any of the following criteria. That if a tenant or a member of their family living in the rental accommodation has a disability. If the tenants are a member of their family living in the relevant accommodation, has a terminal illness, a cancer diagnosis, has suffered from a stroke, has advanced heart disease, or suffers from poor mental health. If a tenant or a member of their family living in a relevant accommodation is pregnant or has given birth in the last three years. Or if a tenant or a member of their family in the relevant accommodation is over the age of 65 years old. So, if government backbench TDs from Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Greens vote against this uh, amendment of compassion, what they are voting is to allow for those cohorts of people who are most vulnerable to be evicted in, in big numbers in the next while. And remember that each individual TD is responsible for their vote. And they will vote on this this evening by the government's own admission. If the government wins the vote, Thousands are going to be evicted. Or you'd swear to God, listen to Dara O'Brien there, that there wasn't 11,754 people in emergency accommodation. Under your watch, 3,400 children in emergency accommodation here tonight. And this government has made a conscious decision, a conscious decision to increase that number over the next number of days. We know that there's 3,000 eviction notices that will take effect from 10 days' time. Ten days, folks. And there's a decision to be made tonight and tomorrow when the vote is cast whether you are going to give support to those individuals or whether you're consciously going to ensure that they become homeless. In the middle of a housing crisis that we've never seen before in modern history of this state, in the middle of a cost of living crisis. Pierce Doherty, his Sinn Féin colleague, Owen O'Brien, ended this debate. And you said uh, that uh, uh, you are increasing supply. This is the big deceit of this government and its predecessors. The reason why we have a housing crisis is because year after year after year, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have not supplied an adequate volume of social and affordable homes. A third of the people in the private rental sector are subsidised by Hapras and Rent Supplement. The overwhelming majority of those people want to be in social housing. Uh, About another 90,000 people in the private rental sector can't afford their rent. They need to be in affordable homes to rent or buy. So, in fact, the central cause of this crisis is you and your policies. And I have to say, Deputy Barry was right. Uh, You will be remembered uh, like some of your predecessors. For those of us old enough to remember when Margaret Thatcher withdrew uh, uh, free milk from schools in Britain, Thatcher, Thatcher, the milk snatcher, uh, was the campaign slogan. Uh, John Bruton uh, and VAT on children's shoes almost brought down a government. That is your legacy. That is what people will associate with the name Dara O'Brien into perpetuity. The minister who deliberately increased homelessness of single people, of adults and of pensioners. Uh, And I have to say, there is nothing in what I have heard from the government today that gives me any confidence that month after month after month 
we won't be here with rising homelessness figures. And we will be here to remind you because the people you are evicting have come to us for support, to be their voice. And until you're out of office, they're not going to get the homes they desperately need and rightly deserve. Oh, no, Brian, ending uh, that uh, debate on uh, the Sinn Féin motion, uh, the vote on that motion will take place in the Dáil this evening. Michael Reed on LMFM. The government has accepted an independent expert review on uh, the North-South Interconnector, which has found that the conclusions of uh, the 2018 International Expert Commission on the decision to build the North-South Interconnector above ground remain valid. They say the review acknowledges uh, that the option of undergrounding the North-South Interconnector has been comprehensively assessed on several occasions. They point to five different reports and studies on that potential but they say the conclusion is that the interconnector cannot be undergrounded because it will not provide the reliability and stability that is required and without those benefits which a HVDC underground cable would not give the savings and benefits to the consumer would be substantially less. Now it's time to start constructing the north-south interconnector which has planning commission north and south of the border. Order. Let's speak to Porrigo Riley, spokesperson for the campaign group against the project as proposed, the Northeast Pile and Pressure Campaign Group. And a very good morning to you, Porrigo, and thanks for joining us. Is this the end of this 15 year old argument? Uh, good morning, Mike. No, it's not the end. Um, uh, we've been here before many times, as, as you're well aware. This to us is, is nothing new, it's just rehashed. Uh, propaganda about uh, undergrounding not being possible. I think it's very um, concerning that the government press release, as you've pointed out, states that the undergrounding option is not possible and, and, and we cannot underground the, the, the interconnector. There is not one line in the report that makes that statement. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, the report, uh, firstly, is just a review of other reports for the last number of years where two independent consultants uh, sat down with Airgrid and asked them to provide a list of the main excerpts from previous reports. So for us, it's not very independent in the way it was set out. But when you actually read the consultants' uh, summary and conclusions, they are stating that undergrounding is possible, is feasible, but that Airgrid are uh, refusing to look at it as, as a valid option. So we're not any further on from where we were many years ago, Mike, and it doesn't change the reality on the ground. OK, but uh, what the government is saying is that there's five other reports and studies that say it's not viable, that it, it would cost a lot more and would be uh, far less reliable. Well, they should read the reports then, Mike, because that's not what they're saying. You know, and, uh, you know, I can't uh, be on this line and saying to you that's not what they're saying unless it's actually correct, unless uh, they've been read. They haven't read the reports. They have a decision made 15 years ago that this is going to be overhead. Airgrid and ESB have stated that's the only way forward, and the government have just accepted that. And all of this, uh, you know, latest report is just dressing up a situation that they w- they've decided to go with from the very start. Uh, I think okay. the, well, the government said it's time to go to construction. Airgrid says it's going to construction. 
you say that this isn't the end of it. How, how, how do you intend to stop it from going to construction? Well, firstly, Mike, this report is neither here nor there because if, if, if you remember when it was originally commissioned, Airgrid uh, quite arrogantly said they weren't going to stop what they were doing irrespective of the report having to be done and, and they weren't going to wait for its conclusions. So they have been working behind the scenes and the ESB to try and move this forward. Um, but nothing has happened of any significance in the last three or four years because we're back to the original problem, and that is that there's no consent on the ground, that they have wrong access routes in the original planning application, and that they cannot move forward without getting the people on board. And until they address that issue, which, by the way, they did with the Kildare Mead line, and, and, and they looked at it properly, and one of the criteria on the Kildare Mead line was that uh, there had to be a decision on deliverability. Now, deliverability has never been examined for the North-South Interconnector. And at the moment, uh, the same as it was 10 years ago, there is no consent on the ground to let Airgrid or ESB onto their lands. OK, but so it can be delivered, can it not through... Compl- can it be stopped is really one for... Uh, is one for Airgrid and ESP. How can it be started? Okay, but can it be started and delivered through compulsory purchase orders? No, it can't. No, it cannot, in our view. Um, so it, it's over to them to try and figure out how they're going to go ahead. If they buy the land they need to construct the pylons, why can't they go ahead with it? Uh, well, there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of complexities around compulsory purchase orders, Mike, and 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 uh, up to now, ESP. For most, for all of their infrastructure projects, have not used CPO because of the challenges around being able to do that. And in order to have a CPO, they first need to have a decision on a way leave into the land. And to have a way leave route decided, they need to have their access routes right, and they haven't got them right. They did not apply for approval of the access routes in the planning application. So, you know, you don't want to go into all of the details, Mike, but it's not as simple as just, you know, fronting up with a CPO. Okay, but you're out of legal if, if options, was, are you? Mike, why, why have they not done that for the last 10 years if it was that simple? Okay, but you're out of legal options, are you, in terms of... No, no, we're not out of legal options. Uh, well, and, and individual landowners are not out of legal options, but I'm not going to go into any details about those, but definitely there are options. Europe? Uh, not necessarily Europe, no. It can be a lot more local than Europe. Right. Okay. Uh, and do you believe, um, though, that uh, there's a, a possibility that Airgrid could get uh, the majority of landowners uh, to allow them to construct the pylons on, on their land uh, because uh, they're going to engage with them? And I take it that means uh, that they're going to negotiate with them and they may make them an offer that they can't refuse. Look, Mike, there have been offers made already in Northern Ireland. There have been offers, there's been talk about various amounts of money. 95% of the, land, percent of the landowners are still saying to us directly and in written format, because don't forget there are forms of authority that have been signed by the vast majority of landowners writing to Airgrid saying, don't come next or near my property, don't communicate with me, you, you know, you haven't done this properly. And Airgrid and ESB have stated on the record that they will respect those forms of authority. So therein lies the problem for them in terms of how are they going to engage 
with the vast majority of affected landowners who have told them directly in writing not to come near them. Could this result in civil disobedience? Uh, that, that, that's a question for Airgrid and ESB, not for us. This campaign has been going for 15 years. Why is it a question for Airgrid and ESB? Because uh, because uh, the, the, the people affected have, have never shown any civil disobedience to any part of this project or the processes involved. We have respected... I know, but I'm getting the impression from you, not just today, but over the years, uh, that it'll be resisted at all costs. Uh, and I have thought at all costs uh, might indicate some level of civil disobedience. As far as we're concerned, there's no need for any civil disobedience because... We have uh, the right, uh, 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 the right, right on our side in terms of how this process has has happened so far, and it is down to Airbnb and ESB to respect the conditions of the planning applications. And if they respect the conditions of the planning applications, they cannot move forward. Okay. So it's very much over on their side rather than our side. Okay, we're hoping to speak to Airgrid. Uh, they weren't available to us today. Uh, we're hoping that they will be available in the coming days. We'll ask if they'll discuss this with you, Porik. Uh, quite normally over the years, they've declined to do that. They have, Mike. Yeah, we, they have been invited for 15 years to every public meeting we've had. Uh, they talk about engagement and they have never come to any one of them. I don't... Uh, I don't think that's going to change now. Uh, statements about public engagement, etc. All they're going to try and do now is offer money to various local communities. And I think they're missing the point here that the uh, resolve is so strong uh, at community level that that is not going to work. Okay. And they really need to address the issue uh, about deliverability and looking at undergrounding uh, at some stage. And until they do that, nothing is going to advance here. But you say you have legal options uh, that uh, you can look at, uh, but you won't say what they are. Uh, um, uh, wh- Mike, what, what do you expect? Why, Airgrid- why would I say what they are? We have been we have been respectfully asking Airgrid and ESB for the last ten years to give us the basics around what is happening with the project. You you know the various uh, issues that have gone on over the years. We've asked for even. Uh, uh, you know, the, what is the the structure of the pylons? What is the stage of uh, the, the procurement process? They went and got approval for procurement before they even went to the planning in 2015. All of this is being done um, without any public knowledge or any public, uh, any attempt to keep the public informed. Uh, so for us going forward, we have to look at all of our options and we'll take them one by one but we will not be communicating or you know, stating in public what our plans are. Okay. Well, as I say, Airgrid aren't available to us today. We will ask if they'll debate their plans with you, Porik, uh, in the coming days uh, but we'll leave it there for the moment. Thanks indeed as always for joining us. Porik O'Reilly, spokesperson for NEPP. That's the North East Pile and Pressure Campaign Group. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. I'm sure you know the first National Action Plan Against Racism in 15 Years was published yesterday and it is badly needed, it would seem, according uh, to the findings of uh, the latest report from INAR, the Irish Network Against Racism, which has seen a significant increase in the number of assaults and criminal acts that have been carried out on people uh, with racism at uh, the core of these uh, attacks against minority groups who are afraid for their safety. Let's speak to Sakshi Aria, who's I report reviewer, who reviews the reports of racism in Ireland and uh, a recent graduate of uh, the MPhil in Gender and Women's Studies in Trinity. Sakshi, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. Uh, you'd 600 reports of racism, including violent assaults and discrimination last year, compared to 420 in and it appears as though the problem is even worse again this year, apparently. Yes, good morning, Michael. As you said, it does look worse, and we believe that this is because of the return to pre-lockdown life. And the most concerning trend of this report has been the occurrence of repeat harassment, which makes up for most of the racist crimes reported around this year. Right. Uh, and why are people being harassed? Well, um, it could be because of, like I said, the return to pre-lockdown life. People are meeting more than they were than last year. And why they're being harassed? Well, that's because of this system of oppression that has its roots and that has always existed. And people are just simply been racialized in their relationships in any given society. Uh, explain it to me. I, I, I don't understand what the system of oppression is, uh, and you'll have to forgive me because I'm what uh, they call uh, a stupid paddy. Uh, at least that's uh, what uh, we were called uh, for centuries, really, the stupid Irish, the stupid paddy, uh, where uh, you were an inferior being and uh, couldn't get a job, uh, the thoughts of, of you marrying into a family or something like that uh, or living next door to somebody would have been beyond the belief of English people in particular. Um, are, are we talking about something similar to that? Well, we are. So so to say, it, racism is a systemic operation oppression which which basically complements and operates through other systems of oppression for example people are oppressed based on their economic or gen economic class or gender or so to say their privileges or their race for most of the part and like you were saying um how histories have have like a great like domination on how people are seen today and that continues to reflect in the structures and institutions of societies and keep affecting people and hence racism exists and it's very much a reality for people from minority ethnic backgrounds and this report that I review and um, many others alongside me do it's just a snapshot of such reports. Okay but I can't understand why Irish people are, are racist. I take it it's Irish people, people who were born in Ireland who are being racist uh, against people uh, who may or may not have been born in Ireland but maybe have a, a different skin colour or are of a different religion or ethnicity, as the case may be. Yeah, well, I mean, 
I think it kind of stems also a little from the language that people use. So, like, I'll give you an example. So, there there are some little kids of Asian-Irish descent that face racist bullying, including verbal abuse and intimidation by local teenagers. And these kind of affect um, how they feel about themselves and how they see their schoolmates. And even when the Garda is reported about these cases, there is no action against them. Mm. So, I mean, if if there is like such less... Uh, reliance on the Garda, I I don't see how someone can be helped. But of course, like you were saying, the National Action Plan Against Racism, that is a coherent framework for tackling such racist um, institutions, uh, government agencies from all angles and mm. it can be it can do something. You know, maybe there's something in it. Maybe the Irish are stupid. Um, maybe we're, we're stupid patties uh, because I, I can't come to any other conclusion. Why on earth, after centuries of discrimination, would Irish people end up being racist themselves when we've been the subject of racism, particularly from the English? I mean, uh, if you lived in English cities in the 1970s, uh, it was quite... Uh, possible, if not probable, that you'd be beaten up by skinheads who were out paddy bashing, uh, as the case may be. Uh, it, it wasn't just that type of discrimination. You wouldn't get work. Uh, people would uh, uh, hate the idea of, of uh, you having a relationship uh, with a, an English person. But I, I grew up watching BBC televisions, actually, uh, and I used to be very disturbed at how they'd laugh at the Irish all of the time. Not not just me, I mean everybody in this country, we used to hate it. You'd have the, the, the three Paddy's jokes, Paddy Englishman, Paddy Scotsman and Paddy Irishman and then the punchline would be the stupid Paddy, the stupid Irishman and everything about you was inferior and we always objected to that and said look we're ordinary people despite our accent, despite our red hair, despite our freckles despite our religion, despite where we were born. And we've got to a stage where I think we've managed to win that argument to a large degree, not completely, but I think generally Irish people are respected now in England and elsewhere. But how we could turn around now and be racist ourselves is beyond belief, isn't it? Well, so to say, firstly, I won't say that it's about stupidity, so to say, but it's about the fact that Diversity needs to be understood. It's a part of who people are, but it's mostly understood even like in Dublin as white genocide, which is not true. It's it's just a white supremacist movement of great. It's like a part of the great replacement conspiracy. But so to say, no one is really trying to replace people. It's just it's about the fact that everyone should have the right to live, mm. and it's which is why. I mean, racism exists is that it needs to be understood as something so inherent in our language and understanding that it needs to be taken out. And that that is what we're trying to do, provide a more comprehensive way of tackling racism compared to individual approaches. Mm. And if we can implement such tools properly, then probably both systemic and institutional racism can be fought in a coherent and comprehensive way. Yeah, it's the systemic part. It's uh, the fact that it's within the culture 
that we're learning from each other to be racist is particularly horrible, isn't it? As well as the institutional racism uh, that you say, because one thing leads to another. And I think anybody uh, who lived in England and many of our listeners would have would would have understood how that felt uh, in the seventies and the eighties, and to some degree in the nineties. I, I know I lived in a, a foreign-speaking country for quite a, a while, and when I, I couldn't speak the language, uh, God, um, it was treated uh, one way uh, as a foreigner, not by many people, but you would have felt it. And then when I could speak the language with uh, an accent. Uh, I was still treated the same way uh, and you felt it uh, and you'd fight your corner and say, well, look, you know, I'm as good as you and uh, give me a chance. Let me prove myself. Uh, and most people did. Uh, and, you know, those people ended up being great friends uh, and people from all over the world come here and they're great friends that I have from many uh, parts of, of the world. But I just find it hard to understand how as a nation of people who were oppressed and suppressed by the shame of being Irish uh, as we grow up feeling or, or were told to feel that we could turn around and treat people in such a horrible way ourselves. Well, then that's perhaps our learning, like we've been treated harshly as Irish people. So we need to turn around and treat people better, isn't it? It would seem that way. Do you think that that's an argument that will just be lost on some people? Because one of the problems at the moment seems to be the far right who are stirring up this uh, national... Anti-migrant sentiment. Sorry, anti-immigrant sentiment, yes. Yes. This nationalist pride, if you like, uh, and claiming that Ireland is, is for the Irish and all, all this stuff. I mean, it's dreadfully racist and we've seen some terrible things happen uh, as a result of the message that's coming from the far right. Uh, and some people who aren't racist are, are buying into that because of the other problems in the country. What you're saying is exactly true. And that's the kind of indication that we also have so far in 2023, at least. And it definitely has a very negative impact on the community confidence. And it does further marginalize already marginalized groups. So I think to respond effectively and to let people know what they're learning is probably another way of uh, societal or systemic racism. Probably they need to learn more about the National Action Plan Against Racism. And that, if implemented appropriately, will certainly help people see what can be done to change this. You know, Sakshi, we couldn't treat people in hospitals if we didn't have staff working in hospitals uh, who had come to this country from elsewhere to look after people. Uh, uh, And I'm not sure if you heard about the protest recently outside of a hospital protesting protesting about doctors and nurses uh, because they were foreigners. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure if uh, you can make any sense of the situation with the kind of people that we're talking about who are racist in this country. Yeah, I, I totally get that. And it's, it's distressing to see. As myself, who's someone living in Ireland for about two years now, I've faced all this myself and I know that the impact that a person has on themselves and their family can be very distressing. And believe it or not, it's 
we people can be dismissed by the garda and then that has a more devastating impact mm. And that's one of uh, the things that you're saying, because there is persistent harassment and you want that to be responded to and the way that it's responded to, to be clear. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's hope that uh, there's some improvement over the course of uh, this year uh, from 400 to 600 reported incidents. Undoubtedly, the number of incidents were much higher, uh, but already you're seeing uh, an increase in that this year. Let's hope uh, that that turns around somehow uh, and that uh, this action plan will have some positive impact. We have to leave it there for the moment, though. And thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. Pleasure to talk to you. Sakshi Aria is an iReport reviewer, reviews the reports of racism in Ireland and recent graduate of uh, the M. Phil and Gender and Women's Study in Trinity College. Michael Reed on LMFM. Speaking of racism or ending racism, yesterday was uh, the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. To mark the day, Amnesty International delivered over 200,000 signatures as part of uh, the Demolish Apartheid Not Palestinian Homes petition. It was signed by people from 174 different countries, including five. 5,000 people in Ireland. Let's speak to Kevin Nocton, who's the campaigns officer with Amnesty International Ireland. And a a very good morning to you, Kevin, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. That's a a strong message to the Israeli government, but uh, I'm sure you'll agree it's most likely one that will fall in deaf ears. Good morning. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, it is a very strong message. So last year uh, in February, we released a report uh, that clearly showed after much research that uh, the Israeli state has created and implemented a system of apartheid designed to oppress uh, the Palestinian people. So it's a really serious issue, uh, and, and it's something that needs to be discussed on, on, a, on a local and international level. So in response to that report, we created a petition, as you said, calling on the Israeli authorities to stop demolishing Palestinian homes and villages and instead to demolish the system of apartheid that we created, that they, that, that they created. And we got a really great response, as you said, from, from the Irish public, over 5,000 people here signed the petition, 200,000 globally. So when you break that down per population, you know, the Irish response has, has far outweighed its, its, its size in terms of our small population uh, compared to many other countries. And so yesterday we sent all of those petitions, 200,000, straight to the office of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in Jerusalem, and we called on him to take action. You know, the Israeli uh, state designed the system and they can bring the system to an end. Um, and many people will associate apartheid with South Africa. But of course, just because it ended in South Africa, it's still happening now in Israel and the, and the occupied Palestinian territories. Um, probably not surprisingly so, given that Netanyahu is one of uh, the most right-wing Israeli prime ministers presiding over one of uh, the most right-wing Israeli governments ever. Yeah, absolutely. But I suppose whether the government of Israel is right-wing or left-wing, you know, whatever government is in power now has the power to do this. And it's in everyone's benefit uh, to bring about, you know, peace and mutual respect between all the communities who who live in these places. Um, And the reality is that the people of Palestine in the West Bank, Gaza and in Israel itself are facing daily struggles and discrimination um, because of this uh, apartheid system. I mean, one, one example, so there's a number of criteria that has to be met to kind of identify something as being apartheid. And one of the key criteria is the fragmentation of a population. So this, the Israeli state has ensured that Palestinians, uh, you know, 
some of them are living in the West Bank. You've got hundreds, hundreds of thousands in East Jerusalem, two million in Gaza who are never allowed to leave. Uh, and it's been intentionally designed so that they are fragmented and that each are given identity cards depending on where they're from. And that restricts their movements, restricts where they can get healthcare, where they can get education. And oftentimes you'll have families who, uh, you know, have different ID, ID cards and so can't even visit each other. And people who live in East Jerusalem, if they leave East Jerusalem for too long, they're not allowed to go back. So whatever government is in, is in power in Israel, we're asking them to take action now and really bring an end to this cruel and, and racist system. OK, well, you may be wasting your breath and people might ask, why does the Israeli government act like this? And uh, I think the answer probably is because they can, uh, because there's no real opposition from the international community. If anything, you could say that the Israeli government has the support of uh, the West. Yeah, uh, that's that, that, to some extent is, is absolutely true. You know, there, there, we need to have accountability at, at the UN level and, and those who are kind of allowing Israel to act with impunity need to take action and, and stop this. So one of the things we've done in Amnesty uh, over the last couple of months, we've joined forces with another, uh, other Irish organisations like Trocra, a number of uh, trade unions, uh, and we've set up the anti-apartheid campaign for Palestine. It's a coalition of groups that have come together. And what we're really asking now is, as the next part of our campaign, uh, to get the Irish government to officially recognise this as apartheid. And once we recognise it, let's take it to the UN at an international level, get other countries to do something, because apartheid is a crime against humanity under international law, under UN conventions. Mm. And if it's recognised as such by various governments, by the UN, then action needs to be taken and account- accountability needs to be brought forward. So and we, 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 we acted in relation to apartheid in South Africa, uh, uh, as uh, people will remember, uh, because of a campaign that was driven by the Dunn's workers. Uh, and very similar uh, to that is uh, the Francis Black Bill. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that something that you'd like to see uh, the government support uh, the Occupied Territories Bill? Yeah, absolutely. And Francis is part of our coalition and it's something we've kind of worked on in the past because uh, we'd also agree that, you know, if you have an occupied territory and, and there's goods being produced in, in that occupied territory, there has to be regulations, there has to be, um, you know, uh, sanctions on, on the fact that, you, you, that companies can't go into these places and, and produce goods in occupied territories. So, we, yeah, that, that bill hopefully, you know, will be, will be part of the process going forward on top of um, separate legislation to officially recognise us as apartheid. And all of that can be part of an Irish kind of action to really see something be done here and maybe at the EU and, and UN level, level uh, going forward. OK, maybe we worry about how that would be interpreted by the United States. Yeah, um, that, that would obviously be, you know, something that would have to be dealt with at, at, at a government level. But I suppose what each, each country needs to take its own stand. So obviously the United States has a bigger population, has a bigger influence, but we're a really well-respected country on an international level. We've just finished a successful term as, uh, on the UN Security Council. So we are respected, especially in this field. You know, we've been through our own conflict and we've seen, you know, how dialogue can solve problems. So, um, you know, we, we have a, a role to play here and, and the Irish public have a real interest in this issue. But can um, Ireland take its own stand as a, a member of uh, the European Union? Uh, because uh, the European Union has been criticised because on one hand it's giving this great support to an oppressed people in Ukraine and on the other hand it's rubbing shoulders with Israel. Hmm, and I suppose, you know, whether we can take our own stand or not, it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, various legal uh, opinions on that. We would very much believe that we can. Um, but, you know, we have to take some sort of stand and we have to begin the process of having this discussion 
I think a lot of people in Ireland would, would have sympathy, you know, with the Palestinian people and the oppression that they face. Many people haven't yet associated the word apartheid with what, with what is happening in that area. So that's the beginning of the process, get the government to kind of start talking about that, get the government to recognise it. Uh, and then we can begin the process going forward at the EU and UN level. It won't happen overnight, but Ireland can take a leading voice on this. Okay, Kevin, I have to leave it there. I'm out of time, but thank you for joining us on the programme today. Kevin Nocton, Campaigns Officer with Amnesty International Ireland. Maggie McGuire researched today's programme. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.